When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, and welcome to Motherfuck Lore. If you're a regular listener to the show, you know we often talk about themes and topics that hang on the thread of Irish ideas of inclusion and exclusion, belonging, community. These are topics that are dealt with in the writing of today's guest. Her name is Fadila Salhu. She's a writer and a student who is based in Dublin. Today in our chat, we discuss ideas like being Muslim in Ireland, Irish cuisine and who gets left out from things like ham sandwiches and flourish breakfasts. The common threads between colonial subjects choosing to document their struggle in the English language as opposed to the language that maybe is traditional to them, the language as part of a revival movement they want to be part of. And that's coming up right after this message. Today's episode of Mother Folklore is brought to you by the show's supporters on Patreon. Supporters such as Sarah Hart and Jared O'Sullivan. Garmila Mahogov, Sarah August Jared. Supporters of the show get access to bonus features such as our live video chats with recent guests. We have um, just this very week we had Neve Lear on. The previous week we had or- Orla Nigul on, who both had been on, on extremely popular recent episodes. And Patreon supporters are able to ask them questions, tune in live, as well as and if they couldn't make it live, they get access to the whole video content the next day released there. Here's a little clip of one we did this week with Neve Lear. You know, you only hear about big news and it's the little news that really kind of uh, keeps people together. The, the internet has maybe changed that. Certainly social yeah. media has changed that. Or even um, like RIP.ie. Mm-hmm. A revelation. My mum checks it every single morning. And she feels, every single morning. And she feels so much more connected to home and what's going on. And like if someone's died, she'll call her brother who uh, lives in Athlone and be like, Jimmy, there's a, a funeral up in there you've got to go to. And like... I think for her, um, she's the oldest daughter. Yeah. And I think in some ways it's her fulfilling the role that she felt she always had to have. And she can maintain that position in her family mm-hmm. remotely, which I think is really important for a lot of people. So do check it out at patreon.com forward slash Derek. And now the show. From the Hestive Podcast Network, welcome to Mother Folklore, a podcast about words, Irish, Irish words, and words from Ireland. I'm Derek O'Shea. I'm very lucky to be joined today by a special guest who is a student and a writer based here in Dublin City. Her name is Fadila Salau. Fáilte Mother Folklore, Fadila. Thank you, Grimalgut. Oh, wrote. Fadila, um, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about yourself? Well, I am a university student. I am 
come from a Nigerian Irish background. So my parents are Nigerian and I was born and raised in Dublin. So I suppose I've had to navigate an extra element of my identity while, you know, just growing up and dealing with being young at the same time. So that's kind of hmm. fuel for my writing. And then I just, you know, study law on the side. <laughs> on the side, on top of everything else. When did you realize you wanted to be a writer? Probably in third year when I was studying for my junior cert and I got an English Grimes tutor. And basically in the process of him, you know, helping me get a better grade, he told me um, that I might have a talent for writing, that I should consider pursuing it, um, that I could potentially, you know, write some really good stuff. And I didn't believe him because I kind of just, I pushed it aside. I thought writing and storytelling was, I had only really related it to my primary school experience. You know, everyone yes. does creative writing and we have to write stories. And the only thing I ever credited myself for was not ending every story with, and they all woke up and it was all a dream. So <laughs> I suppose that was, that was all I really gave myself credit for. So I never really considered any talent with writing. And I didn't really like to look at what I read either. I think that was like a confidence thing as well. Um, but yeah, that, that's when I actually really started to consider it. I think, I think a lot of talents, the growth of talent and the growth of standards must be, I'd like to think they go hand by hand in hand and you decided, yes, this wasn't good enough to end a story this way. So that's fantastic. So, and then you, you mentioned there, there was, those are grinds in English and your English tutor encouraged your, encouraged your writing in this way. How did you feel about Irish when you were in school? I, I really, really liked Irish, um, from from the jump, like from the get-go, I just really enjoyed it. Mm. Um, I was I was learning it just alongside everyone else at school. Um, it was pleasant. I really enjoyed it to uh, to the point where I would get a bit like I'd get a bit defensive when people would complain about the subject because obviously people didn't think it was taught in the most engaging way, and people would say stuff yes. like, "Oh, what's the point? It's a dead language. We're never going to speak it. We're never going to use it." You know, and I would be like. Guys, you know, it's it's great. And I had a passion for all things languages. Um, I had, I don't know, I was very protective over it and defensive. And I was like, guys, it's, it has so much richness and history and culture. And I'd get defensive and people would be like, why, why do you care? Like after your exams, you're not going to speak it like the rest of us. Um, mm. And I, I suppose I was only, I didn't voice all of my my passion for the Irish language because I always felt a bit conscious of doing so because I was wondering, like, is it really my place to defend mm -hmm. this language? Um, my Irish Nigerian self telling, you know, fully Irish people that they should care more about this language. Like, maybe it's not my place. Shouldn't it be the other way around? That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd, I'd like to think it sits in entirely your place and the Irish language is welcome to anyone who wants in. I yeah. certainly hope so. And what did you feel when you were doing the even even doing the leaving cert more fairly recently compared to the rest of the mother folklore team? So your memories are a bit fresher and maybe more urgently relevant to some of, some of our listeners who haven't done their leaving cert yet. What did you? How did you feel about the the texts you were studying and the legendary Srofik tour? Oh, the Srofik tour were my favorite. <laughs> I I loved the practical as aspect of it, like just speaking the language in a way that wasn't very formal because you're telling a story and I feel like that kind of marks whether or not you really do or don't grasp the language like if you can express yourself in that way and I didn't I don't think I realized at the time but 
it was a combination of storytelling and language use that are two of my favorite things now. So it probably makes sense, like subconsciously why I was so drawn to it and why I enjoyed it so much. Um, and just, mm. I like showing off of it. I liked showing off like, oh, look at all this <laughs> vocabulary I have. I just really love this language. Um, mm. But in terms of the texts, we studied Gaffa um, by Ray Olinish, and that was about a heroin addict. So I feel mm. like anything people felt negatively um, towards the Irish language, it was kind of dispelled by how juicy the story was. Um, so I feel like yeah. everyone really just had a good time studying it. It was really interesting and really well told. Um, and it touched on mm. a lot of issues um, in Irish society. Definitely. I'm sure Ray would be delighted to hear that if he, if he ever does listen. <laughs> I'm not sure. But uh, that's that's fantastic. And tell me this, what languages did you have in the home when you were growing up? I had English and Yoruba, but Yoruba is a bit mm. secondary um, for reasons that are a bit uh, touchy, I suppose. Oh, it it, okay. it kind of irritates me to think about. It's not really irritates. I think it's more like regret. Like I, it was something mm. I wish I had. Um, so the story is basically that. Um, my parents, being Nigerian, um, grew up in Nigeria and they moved here and they grew up with Yoruba as their first language. Um, and they learned yeah. English mm -hmm. formally, like at school. And they, you know, they have all this, you know, they're, they're able to speak English, basically. So they got here and they had my older brother and they decided that, you know, they would raise him speaking Yoruba because he would have all of the opportunities in the world to speak English for the rest of his life. Yeah. But he probably mm -hmm. wouldn't have any other opportunities to speak Yoruba and to get comfortable and to get in touch with his culture and heritage and, you know, all that stuff. Yes. So basically they decided to, you know, start doing this and, you know, he started school and the teachers, um, I don't know what was the telltale sign because I doubt he was speaking Yoruba mm -hmm. in the classroom, but they basically, they, they confronted my parents and they were like, this is not a good idea. You know, your son's going to grow up confused. You know, his English is going to suffer. He's not going to be able to communicate properly. Like, they, they were all of these excuses, I suppose. I call them excuses because I don't really believe um, they affected it because we have seen how many people successfully navigate two languages, you know? Um, yes. Mm -hmm. So they, they gave all these reasons, and my parents basically gave up on speaking Yoruba at home for what they thought was, you know, the benefit of their child. You know, they wanted him to, you know, have equal chances and all that stuff. So basically, Yoruba stayed alive in my household. Um, they spoke it between themselves, but they mainly spoke to us kids in English. So we do have, like, we are able to, you know, we, we're familiar enough with the language, but we definitely, you can tell that we lack, lack that aspect of really engaging with it from a young age and speaking it and expressing ourselves in it, you know, which I think is most important. And it kind of shows, like, a, a slight disconnect between the identities that's for sure and like, I, I can see that, uh, that that there's probably a lot of irish people with similar stories about their their relationship with irish and particularly parents from Celtic areas when they moved to dublin or, or, the, or the other large towns who didn't maybe feel um before before there was the, the surge in confidence in the irish language maybe this back in the 50s and 60s they didn't like encourage their their children or didn't speak Irish and their children or encourage that to be done so and in some cases so it's it's a very interesting story and like Nigeria would have had 
as a language kind of debate similar to Ireland and that there's obviously Nigeria has several languages and there's a there's on there's, a, there's an ongoing kind of controversy as to whether English should be given prominence I know Chinua Shebe got um was was criticized for choosing to write in English yeah. and well criticized or rather that there was at, at the in back back over 60 years ago when he wrote things fall apart there was um it, it wasn't necessarily seen as the done thing yeah um, I love that you mentioned him because um, on my trip to Nigeria last summer, I really, I fell in love with literature, particularly African literature, as a way of telling the continent's history. And when I came across um, the criticism of Achebe's work, and I read a lot of his works myself now, I think that's really interesting mm-hmm. because as much as, like, I, I realize that when I speak, some people might think that I have, like, a resentment for the English language, and I just hate it as a symbol of, like, <laughs> colonialism and all the horrible things of the past and cultural oppression, but um, at the end of the day, it is, like, it is a very dominant language, and it is very convenient and, um, I, I think, productive to write in the language, because now we can see that his work has reached so many more people than it would have had he written it in um, his language of Igbo. And I think that that's even more important. You know, the Igbo people will still have their their language struggles and their fights to keep their language alive and their culture and their history. But at the same time, mm-hmm. him writing in English helps non-Igbo people to understand the struggle and understand this history and, you know, kind of realize the effects of, English presence and English language and all of the things that go with that. And, and even the, the fact that he does kind of use some some of the, the, the Igbo loan words in that particular text. I haven't read much, much of his other works except for his um, except for his um, essays, which are um, very powerful. His essay on Conrad is um, essential reading and particularly on, uh, on, on how Africa is represented by European writers was really thought provoking in a way that um, hadn't occurred to me before I was in university when I guess we were we had been so familiar with adventure tales set in Africa or in India, like like King Solomon's Mines and like the Heart of Darkness, which but just were um which took a a, a very um an unnecessarily uh, bad took a took an unnecessarily European Eurocentric perspective on something that was happening it was a tragedy happening to another country. Yeah. Um I like I like particularly like your your use of your mention of his use of uh, loan words because I like um, in texts that are, you know, set in another country, but written in English where they would use mm-hmm. like words, but they wouldn't like have footnotes like this word means this or let me translate this for you because I'm like, yeah, you don't need to explain it. You know, you people mm-hmm. who read this can go and try and figure it out for themselves the same way that, you know, people who speak this language have had to do all the work themselves in English. Like I, I like the, the aspect of not necessarily owing anyone an explanation for your own language absolutely and, and of course uh, things fall apart has been translated to irish has it yeah all uh um, Ajakadoni and and i did an episode about it last year just talking about how the how the how this classic nigerian novel was translated into irish they kept the Igbo loan words obviously because they didn't translate them into english when they, they, they should be also left intact and some of the, some of the folk tales when they're actually uh, that are recounted by characters in the books. They, they like the one about the tortoise and how, he, how, how the world was created and things. They they actually sound a lot like kind of Irish traditional stories, and they're translated that way. It's a it's a very well executed translation. The the translator was the wife of the former Irish ambassador to Nigeria. Well, that's that's wonderful, and I feel like mm-hmm. like in reading that work, it will become 
so like obvious to every reader, like how similar yet different, of course, but how similar the the stories of um, the Igbo people and the Irish people are, or the stories of like most Nigerians, uh, you know, and mm-hmm. Ireland, both of them being former British colonies and you know, all of the all of the fallout from all of the history is always going to be, there's always going to be parallels between that. And that's something that I realized myself, which is, I think, the first time I ever really interacted with you, I suppose, was when I tweeted about mm-hmm. Pack Baby, um, your book. And I just noticed, like, it was so profound when I read it that so much of what you wrote about, you know, and Irish culture and Irish language and how it's really how it stays alive and how it's being preserved. And it was what I felt related a lot to my private struggle between, you know, Yoruba and my household and what is the proper language to speak and what is the official and professional language and all of that kind of stuff, you know? Well, th- thank you very much. I, now, I, I, I remember because you, you had mentioned it, I, I wrote a particular chapter in Crack Baby, my second book, which was about different perceptions of multilingual children and specifically how a lot of Europeans, they aspire to, they look, Irish and English people look to Switzerland and Belgium and wonder how these kids can manage to have three or four languages, but um, two or three blocks in their house, there might be um, uh, immigrant families with three or four languages and it's treated like a problem to be solved. Yeah, uh, definitely. You can see that in just like, you know, regular people attitudes. Like, I, I don't want to say the average person, but I suppose like the public perception of, I grew up with Romanian friends, Polish friends, um, friends like myself who, you know, had backgrounds in African languages. And it was so commendable, like if we had a foreign student who, I don't know, spoke French or Spanish and then was also speaking English, it's like, wow, this is so, this is just so amazing. And we're like, but we're kind of doing the same thing. But no, this, this particular way, <laughs> kind of just like the hypocrisy. And people don't even realize that it's a bit of a double standard, but I, yeah, it's yes. just, yeah. It's it's funny one, all right. When you have, when when people do that, I know someone said that when you're in a sometimes if, if you're in a job interview and a, like a, it's it's acceptable for one person to say, oh, like I'm, I'm trying to remember what, what this is actually called in English. You know, en français we call it this, and a person can appear very um, very intellectual if they've experienced some ideas in in French or Italian first. But it's uh, but it's it's seen as less so in certain things. Uh, it does tie into this idea that like how do we how we perceive multilingualism as a talent or as a um or as a state of transition yeah definitely even how we view accents as well you know certain accents are easily just far more acceptable than others you know and far more yes. you know it'd be like oh wow maybe a, a french or german accent or when they mispronounce a word and be like oh, wow such a cute mistake or a nice little accent whereas maybe someone <laughs> from in- I, I don't know a cute mistake do people say that um but someone oh, yeah, from no. India would do the same thing and it would be viewed as, you know, this person didn't try hard enough. This person isn't educated. And I, I hate the the correlation or the the mental association we have between people's ability to speak English and their level of intelligence. Um, it's, yes. it's just absurd. Like it doesn't it's it doesn't make any sense. English is a language, not I, a measure of intelligence. Like it never has been. And it it's. Like just at its core, it's just such a flawed concept. We talked there about uh, a bit about Nigeria shares with Ireland a colonial history, particularly British colonial history. But one of the, I guess, other t- kinds of colonialism 
and maybe one that maybe Ireland is more at the forefront of is, I guess, missionary work. And for a lot of Irish people, the the this is an experience that Ireland had a, a very high output of, of Christian missionaries, uh, particularly in the 20th century and beforehand, especially in Africa. And that was there was that it was a way of imposing European values that was that ran parallel with the colonial process. And this is something often that people um, are actually aware of. But for someone who comes from a from a non Christian tradition in Africa. Uh, does, is that a different experience? Do you find that maybe as a as an Irish person of Nigerian heritage, but not of Christian heritage, do you have a different experience of um, growing up in twenty first century Ireland than a an Irish person of Nigerian heritage who is Catholic? Mm, probably. Or is that a big question? <laughs> yeah, no. Um, I I think I do mm-hmm. naturally, of course, because when you have two different backgrounds. Like I tried to make as many connections. I don't know if I actively tried to make these connections, but I ended up coming to the conclusions that, oh, in language, we're so similar in this way. And in our history, we're so similar in this way. Whereas I wasn't quite able to make that link between religion because personally, I just couldn't relate. Um, when mm-hmm. I My first primary school was an educate together. So it was just multi-denominational and just full of, you know, all sorts of kids from all sorts of different backgrounds, just running around and sharing all these... Um, experiences it kind of felt like being at an international school because there was just so much cultural influence from everywhere um yeah and then in fourth class i moved to a uh catholic national school and that was a shock for me that was really something um because i had read about you know saying prayers at school and i had read about um all of these things that are you know typically traditional irish national school experiences I was like, wow, that must be something, you know, it might be, it must be so interesting to have this, you know, traditional schooling system. And then I was in it and I found that, I found that super interesting. And it was, it was a bit, at times it felt a bit lonely, just kind of like sitting in the classroom, everyone's, you know, head down or saying their prayers and stuff, you know, in one voice as well. And just the oh, symbolism yeah. of there being one voice and your voice not being part of it. It's, you know, as a kid, it's a bit sad, I suppose. But yeah, at the same absolutely. time, I was, I was pretty confident in my, my Muslimness. Um, and I had friends in that, you know, in my first primary school, the multi-denominational one, and they were Nigerian Christian. And they mm. were able to relate on a lot more levels, even down to the food they ate, because, you know, a ham sandwich, such a, a quintessentially Irish thing, it's something that I've yeah. never eaten in my life, you know? So, <laughs> yeah, <that's, laughs> it can all come down to a ham sandwich, basically. I was, I remember thinking that, that so much of, kind of Irish, um, so much of Irish traditional cuisine, when you, when you take away the ham sandwich, the full Irish breakfast, and then kind of, and I suppose the, the shellfish as well, it's a, it's a, it's, we probably don't even realize how, um, how, how exclusionary some of our national cuisine is to people who aren't, who aren't Catholic Christian. I think even vegetarians, um, have a hard time. Oh, yes. Like, you know, so much of, you know, even a Sunday dinner is just pretty inaccessible to them, you know? There's only so many times you get a mushroom risotto in a week. (laughs) It's funny because often the only vegetarian option in many restaurants will be this mushroom risotto and it's, uh, it it, it does seem to be kind of thrown together, but that's, um, you mentioned that you moved to a a, a kind of a, a Catholic national school in fourth class. So then would there probably were situations there where um, there was preparation for confirmation and 
and other 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 religious events during it happened during class time. Yeah, that was also um, something something different. And there was a, there were a couple of incidents where like you know it was sixth class and you know my whole class was off at church you know practicing and preparing and rehearsing. And because my whole class was gone, I had to, you know, you had to be moved into another class. But it was just the yeah. fact that I was, you know, a dignified sixth class student sitting with third classers. I was like, oh, my gosh, the injustice of it all. <laughs> you know, but yeah, sometimes okay, the, the, the symbolism of that being sent, being sent back to a, to a, a smaller class. It's one thing like when the symbolism of being sent back to a smaller class does seem quite, uh, quite pointed. Yeah. You know, but like it wasn't, of course it wasn't their fault. And there were other students mm. who, you know, were also not taking part. Um, but yeah, it just felt, it was, it was naturally, it felt a bit exclusionary, but it, it was what it was, I suppose. Um, and also like during class time as well, it was insane to me how much um, time in the actual classroom was spent on like specifically religious activities. And when I say specifically religious, I mean specifically Catholic activities which was just like yes. myself and um, two other Irish kids who weren't um, like who were atheist, I think, or whose parents didn't want them to participate. And a Chinese uh, friend of mine, we were just like, we really, we really spend a hell of a lot of time on this. And it's mm-hmm. just, I, of course I recognize. And as a practicing Muslim myself, I would love for my kids to go like if my future Muslim children that I don't have, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> I need to specify. Um, I would love for them to, you know, feel that their school system um, really, really caters to them and really respects their tr- religious tradition and upholds it and fosters it. But at the same time, mm-hmm. being uh, a Muslim kid in a Catholic setting where exactly that was being done, it did feel a bit, you know, it felt, it was a bit awkward to navigate and, I think it was also pointed because these children were not necessarily from practicing Catholic families. You know, I feel like that's the difference yeah. um, because for them, for most people that I know, most of my friends who went through their communion and their confirmation, that was pretty much their last encounter with the religion um, to this point, like to, to our age as we are now. So yeah. I, I found it, it's a bit, it's a bit strange, like as, as important and as special as it is for so many people, which I respect and I think is really beautiful. It also felt a bit um, redundant that sometimes it also it felt a bit yeah. like just for the sake of tradition, you know. It does seem, and I, I, I can I can completely see how, why the, why that would make you feel, and it's for a lot of par- um, people from kind of uh, from from Catholic traditions who maybe aren't very involved in the church, they might find that sometimes it's just easier to um, so just go with the flow and it, it, it can feel like a nuisance to kind of completely extricate yourself from it. If, if you think, well, if you want, if somebody wants to think that they want to get married in a church or they want to, and um, I know particularly arranging a kind of a, arranging a non-religious funeral seems to be a, um, a complete like a, a minister of nightmare at a time when you just don't want to be dealing with any additional stress and i can see that for schools as well people just think that's oh, just easier just to, to muck in to go along with it and yeah. it is a, it is a real shame because it does i think when you stop and think about it you realize it is it is kind of a it can be quite coercive just to um to have these things particularly communion and confirmation when um when when little girls are getting dressed up in in these little white dresses and getting gifts of money, it's very hard to explain that to um, 
to children who aren't who don't get to participate in that yeah it is i mean of course i feel like for a lot of people um they were taking part in it because their parents didn't want to deprive them of the tradition like like you said hmm. they might just mess they might just feel that it was it's more convenient more easy to just go along with it because i know people who were taking part in their communions and their confirmations and in the at the same time they were saying my parents are absolutely against everything to do with the catholic church but there they were you know performing hmm. all of the rites of passage and you know and of course who wants to explain to their child like why they're not getting a ridiculous amount of money when everyone else their ages you know hmm. i was i was at a funeral last year and i was just talking to uh, some of the some of my friends nieces and nephews who were there who were small and they were they were telling me how much money they were they were clocking up in their in their communions and confirmations and i was just astonished uh, they were making they were making more money than a freelance journalist that's for sure <laughs> so in in um in, in islam the the interpretation of of quran texts and other sacred texts that the, the significance of of translation it's unlike say a big problem in christianity is that people interpret bad translations of the bible take the bits they like very literally and run with it whereas islam does warn against bad translating the quran and that it should be read where possible in its original in, in, in original arabic am i do I, am i correct in that yeah i think now that i think about it the fact that you know i come from a religious background where um language is so central because it is you know the lingua franca of the whole religion arabic um is is mm -hmm. is that and just the fact that m most muslims make the make the conscious effort to become familiar with that arabic language in order to you know understand their religious texts and at at the a while ago i used to think that isn't that a you know that's a bit i don't know it was a bit uncomfortable with it because it was the same kind of i thought it was pretty imposing i thought that it could lead to this kind of thing of arab supremacy because of course there are native arabic speakers and surely they would feel like they have an advantage or they would feel like you know yeah. they're better off but i i came to realize how important it is that there is just like the one you know single text that remains the same no matter how you want to read it like you know there can only be really one version of it so the fact that yeah. everyone goes out of their way to learn arabic means that they're actively taking part in preserving you know this one religious text because i feel i started to think like what if we had you know written the quran in a bunch of different languages of course you can find translations but you know changed because everyone prays in arabic as well you know the ritual prayer but yeah. i mean in terms of like a private prayer like oh god i really want this everyone does it in their own language so just to clarify that but everyone prays mm -hmm. in arabic everyone reads the quran in arabic and i was like well if everyone did pray differently there would be no unity there would be it would it would feel a bit like there would be a disjointedness because one of the things that i really like most about the religion is that no matter where you are a muslim in the world you can always meet another muslim and you will still have the same greeting of peace salam alaikum which is in arabic you know standard mm -hmm. and you will be able to pray side by side and you will pray the exact same way and you know all of the, you have so much shared tradition and the fact that i had to learn this language in order to practice my faith you know the best that i can it, i think it mm -hmm. it really showed me the importance of language in itself because 
all of the expressions in the Quran, all of the metaphors, all of the stories being told, like it really is such a unique experience. And, you know, if you've ever listened to the Quran, you know, it's really melodic and really rhythmic. And there's, and if you study it again, it's even deeper and richer. So I think it, it's just amazing. And I think subconsciously that was probably the first um, encounter I had with language yeah. and its importance and studying it. Because when I was like seven years old, going to uh, a Muslim Sunday school, if you will, and learning this, I didn't really understand it. But now I, I realize just how powerful it is and the symbolism of learning a language. Absolutely. And so you would have been learning little bits of Arabic in, in Sunday school. So. Yeah. Alongside, you know, That's, all of the, the moral lessons and all of that kind of stuff. Of course, it's and so along with English and Irish and that, and having the, the small bits of your at home, that's a it's a fairly uh, it's a fairly rich rich linguistic kind of a backdrop to to have going up. Yeah, it was it was quite mm. unique. Yeah, do you, I think I was I, this came up recently? I think the, the Arabic and Irish share the same word for a knife. I think it's skin. Yeah, I saw that, and it, it was quite fascinating. I mentioned it to my friend, and she is in love with all things folklore. And also in love okay. with Irish. And she was the one who helped me Gaelify my name. I don't know. I, I tweeted about it. Uh, Fadila Nick Day. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, she was the one who helped me do that. And I, I sent her a screenshot of that, you know, Arabic-Irish uh, parallel. And she was like, she mentioned the thing about the Black Irish. Because I remember reading about um, Irish ethnicity and how diverse it is. And, yes. you know, how different Irish people can look from each other. Yet, you know, everyone is still Irish. And she mentioned the Black Irish, which is a term I've never heard of before. And you're like, I was like, are you talking about me? She's like, no. Um, <laughs> she meant, she was referring to people who are ethnically Irish, who have roots in Ireland, you know, indisputably Irish, who are just inexplicably darker than, you know, what you'd expect an Irish person to look like. And I've met so many people who just you could easily mistake them for Mediterranean and they're just fully, fully yeah. Irish. It was really interesting. It's, it's, it's a funny one because it used to be like uh, people used to say, oh, then when the, when the Spanish Armada kind of crashed off the coast to go away, a few of the, a few of the Spanish sailors um, intermingled with the local community, but not. Um, and and what, if that happened, it didn't happen on the scale, which would explain the amount of um, of very dark haired people in the west of Ireland with kind of uh, with dark brown eyes and the kind of uh, those kind of uh, East Mediterranean features. I know that archaeologists and other researchers have traced that back to migration patterns uh, going back three thousand years that can be that suggests that yes it may have been, may have been somewhere from from the from the east mediterranean area that's it is it is a fascinating thing all right and it's a it's a it's wonder it'd be a wonder if any loan words survived from that long ago without being replaced by all the languages that came since yeah it, it's really amazing we love to ask all our guests uh you know, what, what their favorite irish word is and but if you have favorite words in any of the other languages that um have come your way as well we'd love to hear those too Oh my, it's been a while since I've had to think about this. Regrettably, I haven't um, <laughs> spoken much Irish since going into university. My favourite Irish word. Favourites are hard, you know, generally for me. Words that I just like the sound of, maybe. Like, I like the sound of the oh, word banya, but it doesn't mean anything. Like, it's just milk. Yeah, ba banya is a great word. I think I like the word chokrasa. But chokrasa. Yeah, and I like the poem Gavin, which I had to study for the leading cert. You know, oh, yes. it starts with Andy May, Andy Alta Asna Chokrasa. Um, I was a wild animal, 
from the Chokrasa, which is like the the warm savanna-ish areas. And nice. I like the way it sounds. And yeah, I just I like and the fact that it has Cho in there, which also kind of alludes to its warmness. I think that's cool. That is great. So that's my word. <laughs> that's that's a gorgeous word. And before we wrap up, where can people find you and find your writing? I write at medium.com slash Fadila. You will probably find better stuff up there in times to come. I think I'm just kind of warming up and dusting mm. off my, my writing cobwebs. <laughs> Good stuff. Can people find you on Twitter or not? Or would you rather keep that private? Um, I don't, I don't tweet anything of significance, but you can follow me at Fadila underscore Salau. You might be disappointed though. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure not. Fadila, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you so much for having me. So until the next time, Slongafol. Well, it's almost it for us for another week. Thank you so much to Fadila for being a brilliant guest. Before we wrap up, I just want to say if you do a bit of housekeeping. I want to thank Brian very much for being an excellent and patient producer. I want to thank Kirsten Scheel for being an amazing artist who's done the art for this episode and all of our episodes. You should check out her work in the link in our show notes. <laughs> if you want to contact the show, you can do so at motherfucklerheadstuff.org. You might also wish to consider supporting the continued production of Motherfucklore on Patreon. Those who support the show on Patreon get access to a range of other features. Bonus episodes, we've done we've done two live video episodes this week and last week, which are available to anyone who chooses to subscribe now. We brought back Neve Lear and Oral Nigel for episodes to discuss their popular episodes of Motherfucklore. Um, Patreon supporters were able to ask them questions and participate a little bit. It was a great chat. There's also bonus um discount codes and there is a um, members forum and discord and lots of other and we're, we're still added adding new features there so it's um, going to be getting better and better until next time it's long for me this has been a production of the Headstuff podcast network don't let anyone hurt you if, they, if you don't think they'd be at your funeral I was like well of course they're going to be my <laughs> <laughs> everyone's there <laughs>